Remain standing for the epistle lesson from Romans, also our sermon text, starting in verse 18. Listen carefully. Give your ear to the infallible word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on its reading and hearing. Oh God, we praise you because you are righteous in all things and everything that you do. You are just and you are holy. As we meditate on your holiness and the implications of your holiness in light of our sin, help us to believe the truth and may it cause us to be more excited about the gospel that has rescued us from our unrighteousness. We pray that you would increase our faith and that, and where faith is absent, that you would create faith in Jesus Christ, even this hour, through the power of your word and the power of your spirit working through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it appears Paul's going negative on us. Up till now, he's been positive, uplifting, encouraging. Last week in verse 17, he left us with that inspiring statement, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous must live by faith, Paul said, because the only way to be righteous before God, to to be declared righteous before God, the only way to have a a right standing in his presence, to have favor with him, is to receive the righteousness that he gives to everyone who believes in Jesus. Okay? But this good news, it raises questions, that, a question that Paul needs to address now. Why do I need to receive righteousness? Why do I need to receive a right standing before God? Why do I have to receive a righteousness that comes from outside of me, that's given to me, that's declared to be mine, even though I didn't produce it? Well, to answer that question, Paul's going to have to talk about 
the bad news. Okay, the gospel means good news, but Paul needs to talk about the bad news. And, and Paul's answer to, the, to those questions in a nutshell is, I need God to give me his righteousness because I can't even begin to produce a righteousness of my own. I, I, I can't produce any righteousness whatsoever to commend myself you know, to God. That's the, that's the nutshell answer, but Paul doesn't give the nutshell answer. He spends two chapters painting the dark picture of humanity's depravity. But this dark backdrop of sin is necessary because it's against this backdrop that the bright jewel of Paul's gospel shines all the brighter. The good news shines all the brighter against that backdrop of the bad news. So starting in verse 18, Paul plays the role of the prosecuting attorney. He he begins proclaiming the bad news, not because he's grumpy or critical or negative, but because the gospel is only good news in response to the bad news. Comprehending the good news can only happen insofar as you've comprehended the bad news. And the bad news is that a This applies to every one of us. The bad news is that apart from Christ, apart from the grace of God, you're worse than you thought. You're more hopeless than you realized. You're more condemned by God than you ever imagined. It's worse than you thought. And until we begin to appreciate how far we've fallen into sin and how, how deep and wide our sinfulness is, We can never begin to appreciate the depth and the breadth of the gospel that saves us. If you don't understand the wrath of God against your sins, wrath means anger. If you don't understand the anger of God against your sins, the gospel of God's grace, the good news of God's grace, it won't excite you. It won't thrill you as it ought to. You won't even see a need for it. Look with me at the bad news in Romans 1, verse 18. And I'm going to be reading from my translation up at the top of the handout. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. God is angry with those who unrighteously suppress the knowledge of God. The connection between verse 17 from last week in verse 18, the first verse this week, is critical. The wrath of God in verse 18 is parallel to the righteousness of God in verse 17. Now they don't mean the same thing, but they're counterparts. You'll notice that both of them are being revealed. Same verb in verse 17 and in verse 18. Something of God is being revealed in each verse. The righteousness of God is being revealed to repentant sinners. Sinners who've turned away from their sin and to Christ. Its counterpart, the wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed against unrepentant sinners. The idea of God's anger or wrath offends our sensibilities, especially perhaps modern man's sensibilities. Bertrand Russell, 
in his 1964 book, Why I Am Not a Christian, wrote, There is one very serious defect, to my mind, in Christ's moral character. He believed in hell. That's the, that's the moral de- defect. He believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, Bertrand Russell says, did believe in everlasting punishment. So he, he sees Christ believed in everlasting punishment and one does find a repeatedly, repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line than to take the line of indignation, end quote. For the last century or two, much of the the church, liberal Christianity, has been trying to accommodate this that sentiment of Bertrand Russell by offering people like Russell a God who is not angry with sinners. A more comfortable God to the modern man. One theologian summed up well the false God and the false gospel that the modern liberal church has given birth to. Richard Niebuhr writes, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Let me read that again. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. If you want a God without wrath, who's not angry, against sin, then then you're going to need a humanity without sin. That's the only way. In Scripture, neither one exists. Neither one exists. The God of the Bible is a God of wrath, which is to say he is a God of anger. In Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor of with which both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath, end quote. In fact, the Scriptures refer more to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than it does to His love, mercy, and tenderness. Did you know that? It's important, though, that we not get the wrong idea about God from all this, about God and his wrath. God God is not given to impulsive, out-of-control anger. He's not like us. He's not like the other gods. The, The wrath of the Greek gods is emotional and capricious and typically driven by ego rather than by justice. But the wrath of God in The God of Scripture isn't like that at all. His wrath is controlled, righteous, rational, just. And it's only ever directed against those sins and sinners who are entirely deserving of it. We also want to avoid the error of giving pride of place to God's anger. 
Maybe you think that I've done that in this sermon already. Well, I'm going to correct that now. Wrath is not a more fundamental, fundamental attribute of God than tenderness. Anger does not describe who God is better than love does. In fact, the opposite's true. Wrath, fury, and anger do not define God and his character to the same degree, with the same intensity, that love, mercy, and compassion do. The highest level, God is love in a way that he is not anger. God's mercy and compassion are primary. At the same time, though, if you remove from God his deep anger towards sin and sinners, you would no longer have the God of the Bible. Our holy God is rightly repulsed by anything that contradicts his holiness. It's, it's also a mistake to pit God's love and God's wrath against each other. God's love and God's hatred are not really opposites. God can and does love those that he hates. And this is because God's love toward humanity is primary and central. God's core and constant emotion, we might call it, toward every person he's created in his image is love at bottom. And this will be true in all eternity. But his love becomes severe in the face of sin. So in the garden, God's love for Adam and Eve didn't evaporate when they rebelled against him. No, God's love remained, though it did take on a new expression. God's love for Adam and Eve remained on them while they were experiencing God's anger, while they were under God's wrath. In fact, it is God's love that drives him to actually care about sin. It's behind his wrath. So God's wrath isn't inconsistent with his love. It's an expression of his love. It, it is precisely because God loves us truly and deeply and faithfully, unswervingly, that he is angry with our sinfulness. God's love flows toward mankind constantly. Think of it, think of it this way. The love of God for his creation is a river that flows from his heart toward his creation. But People don't experience that river in the same way. To, to the man whose sins are forgiven, the river of God's love is like the still waters in Psalm 23. To the man whose sins are still condemning him, the river of God is like the floods of great waters in Psalm 32. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Psalm 32, 6. Paul's always good at anticipating our objections, isn't he? We might ask, but Paul, how can God hold people accountable, humans accountable, mankind accountable, for not knowing him if they've never heard of him? 
And that's true of, of some people, right? They've never heard the gospel. They've never had a Bible. No one's ever talked to them about Yahweh, about Jesus. How, how, so how are these, why is it just for them to be under your wrath, God? And so we might ask Paul the same question. Are, are you sure about this? And he anticipates our objection. He begins to answer this question in verse 19. For what is known about God is visible to them. It's not what can be known about God. It's what is known about God. That's why I translated it that way. What is known about God is visible to them because God has made it visible to them. In verse 18, Paul called it what? The truth. Mankind suppresses the truth. In verse 19, he calls it the knowledge of God. Mankind suppresses what is known about God. Those are synonyms. Truth, what is known about God. If unbelievers want to remain in their unbelief, they have no choice but to suppress what they already know good and well. For the truth is visible to them. And it's visible because God has made it visible to them. God, God has taken every one of us by, by the head in, in both of his hands, you know, his palms on our ears, and he's pointed our eyes toward his eternal power and divine nature, toward his greatness and his glory. And he's given us the ability to see through our eyelids, if we close our eyes. Unbelievers try to close their eyes, but God has turned our you know, eyelids into saran wrap. And yet, they refuse to acknowledge what they see. Why? Because to do so would obligate them to the one they see so clearly, the one we all see so clearly. We see who God is. We know the truth, but in our unrighteous suppression of the truth, we take what we see, we take the knowledge that God has given to us, and we try to push it out of sight and out of mind. This, that, that's the full-time endeavor of, a, of an unbeliever, somebody who decides they do not want to be a follower of God. But such rebellion only serves to fuel God's wrath. God is angry with those who inexcusably ignore the attributes of God. Look at verse 20. For his unseen attributes, even his eternal power and deity, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood by what was made, so that they are without excuse. God has made his unseen attributes seeable. Okay, there's a paradox here that we need to embrace. They're unseen, but they're quite seeable. Particularly his eternal power and his deity, his godness, his godhead, Godhood. Verse 20 expands on the previous two verses by clarifying that the way God makes himself known and understood is through the things he's made, through creation. His attributes are clearly seen and known in creation. So never make the mistake, fellow Christian, never make the mistake of trying to prove to a non-Christian, an unbeliever, a secularist, denier of God what he already knows. 
what he already knows. No intellectual argument for the existence of God or anything like that can move a person closer to the truth than they already are. They're already as close as, they, as you can get them. There, there are no true atheists or agnostics. There are only God-haters. And their rejection of God is not an intellectual problem. And there aren't intellectual hurdles that you need to help them get over. It, you know, intellectual problems that can be overcome through arguments and proofs. Their problem is a moral and spiritual one. It's a heart issue. And it can only be overcome by the power of the gospel working together with God's life-giving spirit to shine the light into their darkened hearts, as Paul calls it later on. So the so-called atheist or secularist is like the guy trying to hold an inflated beach ball underwater so that he can deny its existence and its buoyancy. He's been suppressing this beach ball for so long that his tired arms are shaking, quivering. And then he challenges you to prove to his satisfaction that the beach ball, the one that, he, you know, the one that keeps poking him out of the water, is real and buoyant. Prove to me that it is. If you accept his challenge and, and engage his you know, intellectual struggle, as he might call it, you, you misdiagnose his problem. His problem is that his heart and his mind are not functioning properly. His eyes aren't working right. So don't join him in pretending that he doesn't know the truth. Don't imagine that he's unaware of, of the inflated beach ball that he's trying with all of his might to suppress. He, he knows it's there. It's, it's fatiguing him. Instead, speak the truth to him and love him. So to the God-hater who pretends he doesn't know for sure about God, he doesn't know God, speak the truth to him in love. Tell him about Jesus and his love and pray for God's spirit to conquer his darkened heart. Creation clearly reveals the existence of God, not just the existence of God, the existence of the God who is beyond time, who is all-powerful, who created everything, on whom everyone depends, and to whom everyone is accountable. That's clear. Creation doesn't reveal everything about God. It doesn't tell us that he is Trinity, three in one. It doesn't tell us that he sent his son to die for our sins, for the sins of anyone who believes in him. But it clearly reveals his greatness and his glory so that those who do not glorify him in their lives, those who do not worship him, are without excuse. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day pours out speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout, through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And still unrepentant sinners try as hard as they can to ignore this revealed knowledge. But because the evidence is so clear, they have no def defense for their rejection of the truth 
That's what it means to be without excuse, no defense. They can't claim ignorance because they're not ignorant of it. They're looking right at the truth. They know who God is. They just refuse to acknowledge what they see. They refuse to act according to what they see and know. They refuse to submit themselves to this eternal and powerful God who created them in all things. How does this happen? What exactly is it that God-haters do to manifest their rebellion? Well, they fail to glorify God or thank Him. Verse 21, For although they know God, they do not glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him, but are futile in their reasoning, and their uncomprehending hearts are darkened. At the root of every rebel... Okay, and, and, and this applies to all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, saved or unsaved. But at the heart of every rebel is a passion for self-glory. Every one of us is a, is a natural-born glory hog. We want for ourselves the glory that is due God alone. Satan was the first glory thief. He tried to steal God's glory for himself. He wanted what God had coveted God's glory. In the recesses of every sinful heart is a, is a glory hunger, a glory hunger that is bent in on itself. I'm going to say in a minute that that glory hunger is, is put there by God. It's just been distorted. It's been turned in on itself. And it's, an, it's become an insatiable appetite for self-glory. And, and this craving for glory prevents us from ascribing to God the glory due Him. And if you know yourself even a little bit, if, if, if you have the least bit of self-awareness, then you know your tendency to seek your own glory. There's not a person in here that this doesn't apply to, including me. You long for praise and respect, admiration, consideration, attention, deference, appreciation, we're generally more concerned about our glory than we are God's. But, but here's the thing. There's only one way to satisfy that yearning. And it's not by getting glory yourself or looking for ways for you to shine. You can't satisfy it. You can't be satisfied by seeking your own glory. You might as well try to fill up a bottomless pit with bubbles. Your craving for glory is an infinite abyss that can never be filled. The only way to satisfy your glory hunger is to stop seeking your own glory. Stop being a me monster and to ascribe all glory to the infinite God. Giving glory to God is how you achieve this. Giving God his due glory is the only way to satisfy your built-in desire to experience infinite glory. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You see, the angels and the departed saints, those who have died and are in heaven, 
and have been perfected. They're, they're, they don't deal with sin the way we do anymore. The, those angels and, and departed saints in heaven, they don't deal with glory cravings. Why? Because they're busy ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name. And in this activity, their glory hunger is fully satisfied. It's fully satisfied. Also at the root of rebellion is ingratitude. Have you ever noticed how often we see Paul either, you know, either thanking God for the, for the churches, the Christians he's writing to, or exhorting them, us, to thank God. He's always giving thanks in his writings to God for what, for what God is doing. And he preaches what he practices. In Ephesians 5, he commands, always give thanks to God the Father for everything, for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 3, 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Two verses later, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Giving thanks to God always for everything and every circumstance will prevent you from falling into many spiritual pitfalls and it will release you from many spiritual snares that you find yourself in. Have you ever tried to grumble and complain while giving thanks to God? doesn't work very well. It's hard to do. Have you ever tried to envy someone while giving thanks to God for that person? Again, difficult. Maybe a little bit more doable, actually, but hard. Have you ever tried to covet or blame shift or lie or be discontent or lust while giving thanks to God for all he has given to you? Have you ever tried to ascribe glory to yourself while giving thanks to God? Have you ever tried to doubt the goodness and promises of God while thanking Him for His abundant gifts? Have you ever tried to stay in the grip of sin while giving thanks to God? Giving thanks is the supreme sin spoiler. Gratitude plunders present sin and it prevents potential sin. Would Satan have rebelled against God if he had been thanking God in heaven? Could he have done that if he hadn't stopped giving thanks? Would Adam and Eve have sinned if they had been cultivating gratitude for all that God had given them in the garden? Hard to think that they would have, right? No, gratitude is a sin buster. On the other hand, ingratitude is the gateway to sin. Every sin is entered into by an unthankful heart. Satan and Adam and Eve stopped ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name the moment they stopped being thankful creatures. They stopped being thankful creatures.
So tell me how thankful you are. Tell me how often you count your blessings and name them one by one. Thank God for each of them. And I'll tell you a lot just from that about your walk with the Lord. So what's the result of becoming an ungrateful glory thief? What's the result of, of sinking into being, an un, being ungrateful glory thieves? Futile reasoning and darkened hearts. That's, that's where it leads. Being an ungrateful glory hog puts you on the fast track to insanity and spiritual confusion. Okay, Paul, Paul addresses the mind and the heart, the reasoning and, and the, the center of, of who we are, our heart. It puts you on the fast track to insanity and spiritual confusion. When people fail to glorify God and tell him thank you regularly, their mental faculties suffer and the eyes of their hearts grow dim because less and less light is getting in. And so what Paul's really describing here is a vicious circle. Futile reasoning and darkened hearts suppress the knowledge of God. This leads to the failure to glorify God or to thank Him, which results in futile reasoning and uncomprehending hearts that descend deeper and deeper into darkness. And so the cycle continues. And until God shines a light into this situation, this person will continue to descend into darkness. And as he does so, he will continue to think that he is growing in wisdom and understanding. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they show themselves fools. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of the image of, in, of corruptible humanity and of birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. God is angry with those who foolishly discard the glory of God. One of the easiest things for human beings to do is to genuinely believe, one of the easiest things for any fallen a person to do is to genuinely believe he's acting wisely when in fact he is engaging in utter foolishness. If you don't think you've been there, then you're, then you're just self-deceived. This applies to all of us again. We're not cured of this problem when God saves us. We still deal with it. That's why the book of Proverbs enjoins us not to be wise in our own eyes, it says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Our own eyes are often blind to true wisdom. And this is all the more true of someone who does not fear the Lord or turn from his evil ways. They plunge themselves into darkness and idolatry while claiming to be wise. And sophisticated. The height of foolishness is exchanging the incorruptible for copies of the corruptible. Okay, you go from incorruptible God to not just 
corruptible created things, but copies, images of corruptible things. Exchanging the creator for images of creatures. Verse 23, Paul echoes Old Testament language that describes Israel's fall into idolatry when they, you remember when they fashioned the golden calf and worshipped it in Exodus 32. And Psalm 106.20 describes the golden calf debacle this way. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. So this golden calf was an ox that eats grass. And they exchanged the glory of God, the psalmist says, for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, probably very few of us here have ever been tempted to set up an image of, of a created thing, a human or an animal, you know, a reptile or a quadruped or you know, something like that. These are the sins of pagans and ancient Israelites, right? But that only means that our idolatry is more subtle and more sophisticated, perhaps, than theirs, maybe. We may not bow down to physical images, but all of us are prone to erect idols in our hearts that replace God, that have more prominence than God. Idols come in varied shapes and sizes. The idol may be something sinful in itself. That's possible. But the devil is insidious. He's, he's sneaky. And so more often than not, he tempts us to idolize something that in itself is actually good. It can be good, used properly. Sexual pleasure is a good thing in itself. It's created by God. But when sexual desire is satisfied outside the marriage bed of one man and one woman, that sexual pleasure becomes a soul-destroying idol. The fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good in itself. God had already said that it was good and even good. It was among the trees that were good for food. I think they probably would have gotten to eat from it someday, but that, we can set that aside. Nothing in God's creation was evil in itself. Even the wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil that the tree offered, Eve perceived that it offered this. That was not a bad thing in itself. It's good to desire wisdom, right? But Satan turned it all into an idolatrous affair when he got the woman to covet. He, he lured her into longing for something that God had not yet given her, longing for God-like understanding more than she longed for God himself. And the day you eat of it, Satan told Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like the gods, knowing good and evil. Oh, how Eve wanted to be like the gods. The heavenly beings, the angels, the gods that worship the one true God, that bow down to the one true God. Eve coveted the insight and knowledge that belonged to others. She desperately wanted to be like the gods, like the heavenly beings, the angels. She coveted their qualities, and the tree offer, offered this to her. 
seemed, it seemed to offer exactly what she wanted. And Satan convinced her that it did. And, and so the problem is not just that she wanted these things. That could have been good in its proper place if she'd been willing to wait on God's timing and do what God said in the meantime, even if she didn't understand. So the problem is not that she wanted these things. The problem is she wanted them more than she wanted God. She desired her glory more than she desired God's. And she stopped glorifying God. She turned the creation. She, she, she turned the creation into an idol. She turned to creation when she should have, should have turned to God in that moment of temptation. Paul says in two places, Ephesians 3 and Colossians or 5 and Colossians 3, that covetousness is actually idolatry. Covetousness is the desire to be satisfied by something other than God, the creation rather than the creator. It's the belief that my joy and fulfillment is dependent on getting something, achieving something in creation that has not been given to me, that is not mine. Eve and eventually Adam were covetous idolaters. They allowed something besides God to sit on the throne of their heart, of their hearts. Satan often uses good, God-given pleasures, like fruit, like sexual pleasure, to lure us into an idolatrous spiritual state where we are loving something that God created more than God himself. Calvin said rightly that our, our hearts are idol-making factories. We churn out spiritual idols as quickly as the silversmiths in Ephesus churned out shrines of Artemis. And so let us commit to destroying the idols and the high places in our hearts with even greater fervor and tenacity than Kings Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah displayed when they destroyed the high idols and the high places in Israel and Judah. Paul's bad news is that they, that is all God-haters, they are under the wrath of God. It's about them. And God is angry with them because they suppress the knowledge of God and ignore his eternal power and godness, and they replace him with idols. But this passage sobers us not, not because of what it says about them, but because of what it also says about us. All of us were once one of them. And our remaining sin reminds us of this every day. The wickedness that Paul describes, and he's going to go on to describe in greater detail as we come back to this next week, in the following weeks, the wickedness that Paul outlines in this, in this chapter lingers in each one of us, even though it's been stripped of its power on the cross. So when you find yourself gripped by self-deception and other forms of futile reasoning, when you fail to see what God is clearly showing you, 
when the dark alleys in your heart lure you in, when you become intent on self-glory rather than God's glory, when you fall into habitual ingratitude, when you become wise in your own eyes, when you seek satisfaction in creation rather than in your creator, at these times, remember that you were once one of them and you were under the wrath of God. And that God has actually saved you from the, this wickedness. But also remember that you are no longer one of them. Sometimes you act like one of them. We act like one of them. Because sin has not been completely eradicated, but you are no longer one of them. You are no longer under God's wrath because you have received by faith in Jesus the righteousness that comes from God. The wrath of God was against you. And if you had not turned to Christ, if he had not turned you to him, that wrath would have been eternally resting on you as you suffered in hell. The wrath of God was against you. It was... Here's a picture for you. The wrath of God was on its way down from heaven, as Paul says here, from heaven, and it was aimed at you. It was aimed at sinful humanity of which you were once a member. But God loved you so much that he sent his son to stand between you and that wrath. The wrath of God. So God's anger from heaven landed on Christ on the cross instead of landing on you. Then after he endured the wrath of God on the cross for you, fellow believer, Christ turned to you and he gave you his righteousness, which is the righteousness of God. Glorify God and give thanks to him for saving you from his own wrath. Let's pray. God, we thank you for saving us from the penalty and the power of sin. We pray that you would continue to give us victory and freedom from that sin that lingers and that often entangles us. And to live as those who are your sons and daughters, those who have been freed from your wrath, your wrath and freed from sin. We thank you for the great salvation that you have accomplished for us in Jesus. You, we thank you for giving us your righteousness in place of your wrath. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.